this morning we're going to be doing a, a lesson on Proverbs 18:17. We've done a few of these in the past, and they're a little bit different, so they require a little bit of explanation. Proverbs 18:17 is a great verse. It says that the first to present his case seems right until another comes forward to examine him. It's a great verse for parents trying to figure out which one of our kids is actually telling the truth and which ones are lying. Um, it's a, a great verse for um, any, anything in life. Uh, we need to question it and test it by Scripture, by the Bible, to figure out if what we're actually hearing is God's honest truth or if it's somebody else taking and twisting and manipulating truth. And we need to employ that same kind of reasoning when we're dealing with uh, theological matters, when we're dealing with people who are using the Bible. People can take the Bible and they can twist that and malign that. And so we need to test that uh, by Scripture. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to have um, a presentation that is not biblical, that is taking and, and twisting the Bible. It's a different perspective on uh, God's Word. Uh, an incorrect perspective, and then it's going to be refuted with uh, hopefully more biblical perspective on the Bible. So we're going to jump into that. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. God, we do thank you for your truth, that your word is truth, that you are an eternal God who, who doesn't change, that you are God from everlasting to everlasting, and that we can put our hope and our faith in you and your revealed word. We thank you for uh, your Holy Spirit who has given us your word and, and guided and preserved your word for us and for the, the faithful men and women who have uh, come before us in, in taking and, and preserving and, and handing down your word faithfully to us. We pray that you would help us to be faithful, that we would be diligent, that we would be wise and discerning when we're approaching your word and that you would give us uh, an answer, that we would have an answer for the hope that is within us and that we would be able to better defend your word and that, that hope and the truth that lies within us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So if you remember the last time we did this, I'm putting on what we're calling sheep's clothing here. That's really unflattering uh, suit. I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. And just to reiterate what Tyler said, I'm a heretic. All right. But I am doing my best to seem right as I present my case, and then later Tyler will come up and examine uh, my, my teaching here, and hopefully there will be a, a clear contrast. So now, heretic, okay? Let me begin by asking you a question. Does the future exist? Does the future exist? Yeah, I would like interaction this morning. Joe says yes. Any other feedback? Does the future exist? <laughs> it will exist. What's that, Steve? What's the question? Does the future exist currently? Well, it did exist yesterday. No, the future, not the past. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, yeah. Interesting perspective, Stephen. The heretic calls you by your full name. <clears throat> if I were to ask you, does the past exist, how would you answer that question? You would likely say, yes, that it does exist, but only in the form of artifacts. Notes that we take about history or facts that remain from history, what we can tell about what happened yesterday. The past exists, but only in the form of artifacts. The past 
is no longer. The, pastor, the past no longer is. Past simply refers to time that was and time that is no more. In the same way, the future refers to time that will be, not time that actually is now. To say that things that haven't happened yet exist right now would be to reduce the concept of time down to an idea that's totally disconnected from reality. The future does not yet exist. If we're going to say that human choices are real choices, we must hold that the future is not only undetermined, but that it refers to reality that is not yet. If we are free beings, which we are, and you know this, then the future must be totally open. Now, if I were to ask you, is God in the past? You would say, hmm, right? Is God in the past? Let me ask you, does it make sense to say that God is still in the Garden of Eden in its unfallen state? Is God still with Adam and Eve before they sinned in the Garden? Well, that doesn't make much sense. If I were to say, is God still in fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, before creation? Does he still exist before creation? You would, of course, say, well, no, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We understand that things have changed. And because things have changed, we know that time is inescapable. Time is just the way we describe reality. And God moves along through time just like the rest of us. God is in the present, which is the only real, with the rest of us. Questions later. (laughs) God exists only in the present because the present is all that there is. God is eternal. God is infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. But time was not created. Time is merely a byproduct of true existence. Eternal existence does not necessitate timelessness. You'll hear some people say that God is timeless just because he's eternal. But just because he's eternal doesn't mean he exists outside of time. Every real true existence has the marker of time with it. There was no start to God and there will be no end to God But there are traceable moments all along. Time is not a creation of God. God is in time completely. God experiences succession and change. Just like I was saying, there was a time before all creation when God was without creation. But now he has a creation and he can never go back to being without his creation, can he? He will never go back to being a God without creation. So God must be in time, just as we are. This is clearly seen in the way he responds to the free choices of humans all throughout the Bible. Over and over again in the Bible, God is really responding to people when they make certain choices. We see that God has a past and God has a future. If we say that God is outside of time, like some Christians say, we're saying that God has no past and that God has no future. But instead, his entire existence is one instantaneous moment. That doesn't make much sense now, does it? 
God existed without a creation, now he has a creation. God existed without a blood-bought people, now he has a blood-bought people. God exists now without a perfect new Jerusalem, but one day he will have that new Jerusalem. God experiences succession and change, just as we do. He is temporal, he is in time, just as we are. Some might ask, well, what about prophecies? Doesn't, isn't, doesn't all prophecies prove that God is outside of time? I'm sure you've read the book of Revelation at some point in your life. And God says what's going to happen. So doesn't that prove that he's timeless? Well, prophecies definitely do exist in Scripture. God knows with great certainty exactly what he will do. And it may surprise you to know that the vast majority of prophecies are just about what God will do. And no one can stop God when he decides he wants to act. So of course he can prophesy about those things. And God can say what others will do too. Because God is able to manipulate every situation and adjust all sorts of things in everybody's life to bring about the exact conclusion that he wanted. Yet, the future is open and all of those choices that they made were real. Otherwise, you would have to say that their choices weren't real. Consider Judas, for example. It was prophesied that he would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he did, didn't he? But was that a free choice of Judas? Well, of course it was, because the future doesn't even exist. Yet God manipulated the situation so that Judas would be in that spot, and he knew that if Judas was in that spot, that he would make that choice. And so the future we see is totally open. Thus, prophecies don't prove that God is outside of time. If God is real, and He is, He must be temporal, existing in time, just as we do. Because the present is all that there is. Thank you. <clears throat> don't strike me. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I will take off my sheep's clothing. That was a nasty, nasty jacket. Tyler found it in the back alley somewhere. Yeah. All right. Well, our heretic started off by asking about the future and the past, which, of course, is a, a matter of perspective, right? And he did a, a lot of equivocating throughout his presentation, putting God within the same perspective that, that we're within. We have to, first off, start off with the understanding that God is not a man like we are, right? God is different from who we are. And, by the way, he did ask at one point if, if God is in the past, you guys remember when Jesus said in John 8 that before Abraham was, I am? He chose those words very specifically, didn't he? To mimic the, the words from uh, the Father, from, from God in Exodus three fourteen, where he said that I am who I am, not I was who I was, or I will be who I will be, but I am, um, which is a, a reference uh, separated from, from time. It's not dependent upon time. So this relatively new understanding of open theism, it hasn't been around for, for all that long, and that in and of itself doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but it does perhaps make it more suspect. We need to ask, well, why is this new understanding, uh, a new understanding, why are people adopting this new understanding? And I want to point out two central axioms or, or starting points that open theism seems to be centered around. Um, they seem to formulate their whole understanding, their whole theology around these two points. One is that uh, man is absolutely autonomous, that we can do whatever we want. We have absolute 
free will, and God has no input on our lives, on our decisions whatsoever, on the things that we do. That's something they hold on to, something that they really treasure and they really um, want to have as a truth in their, their worldview. And secondly, is that God is 100% hands-off in his relationship to sin. Not only to, to sin as we would understand it, but to uh, destruction, to calamity, to sickness, to pain, to suffering, to war, that God is absolutely 100% hands-off in this. So they say, man is autonomous, God is 100% innocent. And we can kind of uh, see why those might be good things to, to seek after, but in an, an attempt to make scripture cohesive with these two teachings, they pervert not only millennia of orthodox teaching throughout the church and interpretation of scripture, but clear teaching throughout the whole of scripture. And so um, I just want to go through several aspects of God that they uh, tend to deny. So many open theists will redefine the scope of creation. Uh, the heretic that was just up here was talking about how God is outside of time, how time is somehow over God, that God didn't create God, or God didn't create time, but time is just a, a byproduct of creation. Well, if we look at John 1, 3, it says that all things came into being through Jesus, right? In the beginning was a word, the word was with God, the word was God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The open theist would say, well, time hasn't come into being, so that's why God didn't create it. Um, but that's not sufficient because Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created. Everything, all things, right? And then it goes on and it specifies both in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, like time. Time is invisible. It's created by uh, Christ here specifically, right? But created by God, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. In addition to redefining the scope of God's creation, uh, open theism also robs God of his transcendence. Uh, it, again, as I said, brings God down on our level. It doesn't understand God to be above and, and outside and beyond, to be over all things. Um, this verse in Isaiah 55, this common verse, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher above the earth, and my thoughts are higher above your thoughts, my ways are higher above your ways. We have to have that basic understanding of who God is, that he is completely otherly from who we are before we ever try to seek to, to understand God, his relationship with us, his relationship with his creation and with time. And in robbing God of his transcendence, open theism also uh, misrepresents God's imminence, uh, the fact that God is near, that he is with us. Yes, God has entered into his world. He has humbled himself um, to the point of death, even death on a cross, below angels, and he has uh, taken on appearance as one of his creatures. He is not far off, but his imminence, his, his closeness, his relativeness to us doesn't negate his transcendence, the fact that he is above us, that he is far superior to us. Listen to this verse from, from Hebrews 1, verse 3. Again, common verse. It says that he is, speaking about Jesus, he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. 
And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he is majestic. He is transcendent. And this speaks of his transcendence even in the, the midst of his, his imminence, even in the midst of his work on earth after making purification for sins. He again sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was returned to that glory that he had with God before uh, John 17 verse 5. Uh, God is both transcendent and imminent. These ideas aren't contradictory, but they blend together beautifully throughout the Bible if we have a correct understanding of it. Uh, open theism also perverts this idea, the, the doctrine of the aseity of God. God's aseity speaks to the fact that he is self-sufficient, that he is independent, that he doesn't need anybody else. Um, open theism will say that, um, as was just mentioned, that God needs to kind of manipulate different things. And by the way, this explanation of the manipulation of Judas and how God has to manipulate these things, I think, first of all, it, it undermines these two foundational axioms that open theism tries to be built upon, upon the autonomy of man, of man uh, how autonomous was Judas if God is able to manipulate him, um, and the, the idea that God is trying to stay 100% away from sin, that he has absolutely no involvement in sin. Um, God is the, the ultimate cause behind everything. He is the one who um, is behind everything. He is not the author of sin, um, but he uses sin sinlessly. And that explanation undermines those two foundational points, but it also makes God dependent upon man. It makes uh, his understanding contingent upon man's understanding and man's actions, which are, are fleeting and, and ever-changing. And God is dependent upon the, the actions and the, the motives of his creatures, uh, that doesn't lead to a God who is self-sufficient. It also limits God in his omniscience, that he knows everything. First John 3.20 says that God is greater than our hearts and knows all things, and they would understand that quite differently. Uh, Isaiah 40 verse 13 says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And in effect, if God is kind of waiting for these free will decisions to be made by man, he's responding to these different things. Uh, then he is kind of being counseled. He is being lead, led and directed by us that we kind of take that position of authority and we get to be the ones who, who guide and determine the outcome of our lives and God is just left to respond, to react. And ultimately, I think the, the biggest issue with open theism is that it doesn't understand, therefore it denies the immutability of God, the fact that God cannot change. It, it doesn't understand that, that aspect, that God is unchanging, that he is mutable. It will assert that God is responding and reacting to man's free will decisions in real time, changing his mind or even informing uh, God as to previously unknown information that he's acquiring from his creatures, which is just so backwards from how scripture presents God and his all-knowing uh, reality. It will kind of straw man Christianity to say that um, God doesn't change in any way ever. We, we believe that, right? That God doesn't change, but we wouldn't say that God doesn't change in, in any way whatsoever. And then they'll say, well, what about passages like Exodus 32 where Moses prayed for his people and then God changed his mind? Or what about Jonah chapter 3 where, where God was going to come in, he was going to completely destroy Nineveh, and then they repented and God relented. He changed his mind. Well, what about that? We see there examples of God changing. Uh, well, I have 
here four specific ways from, from Louis Burkhoff. He mentions four specific ways in which God doesn't change. He doesn't change in his being, in his attributes, in his purposes, or his promises. Uh, we know that God doesn't change in his being, right? Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, he doesn't change in his, his attributes, in, in who he is and, and what he does. James 1, 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from our Father above, um, with whom there is no shadow of change. There is no shadow of, of shifting within God. God doesn't change in his purposes. Isaiah 46.10 says that God, who is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God does what he wants because he is God, not because he's um, good at guessing the future, not because he's able to manipulate us, uh, but because those are his purposes which were established before time began. And God doesn't change in his promises. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So God makes promises, and he's able to keep those promises. He's able to make these prophecies, again, not because they're solely dependent upon him and his actions, but because he's able to step into time, and um, he's in control of all things, that there's nothing that takes place without God giving his, his permission for that. We see in Acts, um, either chapter 2 or chapter 4, that um, those people that came up against Jesus, um, Pontius Pilate and Herod and all the Gentiles and the Jews, that God was predestined. He was purposing all those things. He was working all those things together for his purposes. Each one of those people or groups of people were being um, led and directed by God for his purpose, for his will. Another thing that we need to keep in mind when dealing with open theists is that they will um, take and, and twist a lot of the language that we see in Scripture. We have to remember that, um, one, God is separate from us, right? He is both transcendent and imminent. He is above us, and yet he has entered into his creation. And yet he speaks to us in a way that we can understand. He uses language that is anthropomorphic. It's a, a big word to say that God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. So when he talks about in the, the beginning or um, uses references to time as, such as before or after, we have to understand that he is speaking to us in a way that we can understand because he is so transcendent and so uh, unsearchable. His ways are so unknowable, so far above our ways that he has to condescend to us, to our level, and speak to us in a way that we can understand. And lastly, uh, I just want us to think about and consider the consequences about having a God who is mutable, a God who is changeable, who is able to be changed. That would be a, a terrifying God. That is a God that is much more akin to uh, the God of Islam than to our God. In, in Islam, they'll say even the most faithful follower of, of Allah uh, who uh, gives up their life in, in jihad, in the holy war, that they can get to, to heaven and God can say, oh, I'm, just, I'm having a bad day, so you're condemned forever, right? Um, that God is so flippant. And if we served a God who was changeable, it would be very much akin to, to that kind of God that if he could become even 1% less holy than he once was, then what's stopping him from becoming 5 or 10 or 100% less holy? If God is unchangeable, then even our, our salvation isn't certain, then one day we could get to heaven. He could say, oh yeah, well that promise that I made that 
um, you are bought with the blood of Christ, that's no longer relevant. That's, that's old news, right? I've, I've changed, I've grown, I've matured since then. So anything that you are, are hoping, anything that you are um, banking upon, even if it's in me or in, in my attributes, my character, that, that's out the window. We don't serve a God who can change. We serve a God who is unchanging. We serve a God who is outside and above time, uh, who is the creator of time. Um, and we really need to be careful of this kind of teaching of open theism because it's becoming more and more popular and it can creep into um, different channels of, of teaching that we might be consuming. Now, any thoughts or questions on open theism? What do you mean? Well, so wouldn't that their belief, their belief that would only cover the people leading up to Christ? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so we're not covered under that blood. Very insightful question. Mm -hmm. I uh, I debated a an open theist, <coughs> and uh, I asked him that very thing. I said, so oh, is this gonna am I like on like a leash? Oh, here we go. Uh, and uh, Anyway, yeah, I asked him that very thing in the debate, and basically I kept pressing him on, okay, it's not the people who lived before Christ, but when Christ died on the cross, did God know with any amount of certainty that anyone after Christ's death would believe in him and be covered by the blood of Christ? And I kept pressing him on it, and he kept doing all kinds of word salad and moving all over the place. And the, but the answer is no. And that's, and that's the biggest problem with open theism, is it totally does away with all of God's certainty. God is not certain if you'll be alive tomorrow. God is not certain if, uh, you know, his church will fill up with people. God is not certain, you know, going, a passage we're going to look at today, God wouldn't have been certain if the sin of the Amorites would ever be complete. God's just not certain of anything in the future. And that is, uh, that's the biggest problem. It takes away all certainty. Yes, Lizzie. belief in God, in one God. Well, monotheism is a belief in God, but theism is a belief in God. So open theism, what is that? What is that? That God, God doesn't know the future. The open, openness of God yes. is another belief. There's a book titled The Openness of God. God is open, he has not determined anything for the future in any sense. Yep. So, other We believe in a theology. Yes. <laughs> but there's like there wouldn't be like any theism. It would just be I don't know. Just Trinitarian monotheism. Yeah, we're we're not open theists. Nope. So what's the opposite of biblical theology? Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Real quick. Um, it is interesting, like Tyler was saying a couple times, it's a newer movement. When the Baptist Southern Baptist Convention came out with the Baptist Faith and Message two thousand their latest iteration of their doctrinal statement, they put a line in there that addressed open theism when they said that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. And so they, they included that line because of the rise of open theism within the SBC.